I'll be the first to admit that that account we just heard read from Matthew chapter 2 is kind of seems out of place in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas, doesn't it? And it stands in quite, quite a stark contrast to what we celebrated last weekend. I mean, last weekend we celebrated the nativity and the incarnation of our Lord, these profound and beautiful truths that, that really are fundamental to our faith, right? We celebrated the fact that God came down that he assumed humanity to be born under the law, to live and to die for us, to give us things that the world could never give us, to give us things that you and I could never have on our own, the forgiveness of sins and peace and eternal life. And when we walked away from both of those services last weekend, we walked away like Mary. We treasured up the peace and the forgiveness and the hope that is ours, and, and we pondered them in our hearts. And then this weekend, we hear an account about genocide. Herod killing all of those boys, two years old and younger, in Bethlehem, and you're left scratching your head. By all accounts, this is absolutely terrible. There's no getting around that. All of these boys dying, these first martyrs of the new age that Christ brought into the world when he, when he came and took on flesh and blood. And when you read through or you hear read an account like this from Matthew chapter 2, you and I were always going to be tempted to ask questions for which no satisfactory answer exists. It's the natural tendency for human beings to ask the question, why? Why would God allow a genocide like this from such a tyrannical and wicked ruler to take place? Why would God allow these mothers and prophesy that these mothers would go through this through the prophet Jeremiah? Why would God allow these mothers to endure such loss and sorrow and pain? There's no satisfactory answer for those questions because those questions, when we ask them, what we are doing is demanding things from God that we have no business knowing. What we are doing is demanding to know the mind of God, which we are not privy to, nor does God ever promise that we would know it, at least on this side of eternity. So it's tough. It really is. And before you start maybe zoning out of this sermon and and writing it off because there's satisfactory answers don't exist, I I want you to understand that there is a particularly comforting truth in this text, one that actually brings a lot of comfort for these last two years that I can only, last couple years actually, not just two, but last couple that I can only describe by using the phrase dumpster fire. Like that's kind of what these last couple years were. And this truth that you find in Matthew chapter two is this, that when it comes to procuring and winning your salvation, there is nothing, absolutely nothing in the world that can stop God. That's what you see in Matthew chapter 2. Not even the best laid plans of one of the most powerful men in all of the world can stop God from doing what he planned to do for you. Now this text from Matthew 2, it requires maybe a little bit more background information than what is typical for a text. So next week when we gather for worship, we're going to be celebrating Epiphany, where where we get to explore how God revealed the Savior of the world to these wise men, these magi from the East, these Gentiles, who who really, by all accounts, had no business knowing who who this Savior was, except that God is gracious and merciful. So when these magi, when they see that star in its rising, they know that it means a newborn, a new king of the Jews has been born. So they go off and search in the one place where it's logical to search for a king of the Jews. They go to Jerusalem and they go to the man in charge of Jerusalem, a man by the name of King Herod. And, and it's really the question that the magi ask that sets King Herod off on his murderous rampage. 
You remember the question that they ask? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, if you know anything about King Herod, well, that'll help you to understand why this question sets him off. King Herod was put in charge of Judea by a man that we talked about last week on Christmas Eve, Octavian, Caesar Augustus. And when Herod is put in charge, he loves the kind of power that he has. Now, the Romans, they love, they love Herod because he's able to, to quash the Jewish revolts and rebellions that, that would pop up from time to time, and he did so by ruling with an iron fist. Now, all of the reasons that the Romans loved King Herod were all of the reasons that the Jewish people hated King Herod. He was cruel. He was wicked. That whole idea of ruling with an iron fist, they couldn't stand. And it seemed like Herod had a little bit of a sadistic side, that he actually loved being able to rule the way that he did. Now, from the time that Herod was put into power, he really had one goal in mind, to hold on to that power by any means necessary. So Herod, he, he drowns his brother-in-law because he was a threat to his power. He has his sister. He has his sister's husband, their two kids, and his own mother executed because they were threats to his power. Herod had one goal, Right? Hold on to this power in any, in any way I can by any means necessary. So when these magi, when they show up and say, hey, where's the new king? Herod has no idea what they're talking about. He's incensed by this because Herod's the guy in charge. He was placed there by Caesar Augustus himself. But Herod, he, he's able to mask that anger a little bit by asking a question of these magi. Not a question, really, but, but really giving them a command. He tells them, hey, go and make a careful search for this child so that I may go and what? that I may go and worship him. And so Herod, he tries to use these, these magi, these wise men, to carry out his tyrannical plot because Herod, one of the most powerful men in all of the world, he has no desire to worship Jesus. He wants to wipe him out. He's not going to go sing praises to Jesus, but rather just get rid of him, get rid of them. But God, he's got a different plan. These magi, they go and they find baby Jesus. Well, he's probably not a baby anymore. He's somewhere in the realm of one to two years old. They go and find him and they worship him. And God, he tells these magi, hey, don't go back to King Herod. Instead, return to your country by another route. And when Herod finds out that he's been duped by these magi, well, this is what sends him into this murderous frenzy. He gathers an army of soldiers and he tells them, I don't know who this king is. I don't know where this king is, except that he's in Bethlehem. And so what I want you to do is I want you to go and murder every two-year-old boy in Bethlehem and its vicinity, two years old and younger. I don't want to take any chances. But this is where you find out at this juncture in this account where God has a very different plan for what's going to happen. Because it turns out not even the best laid plans of one of the most powerful men in the world can stop God from winning your salvation. God sends one of his special messengers, an angel, to Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, and he tells him, don't You've got to flee to Egypt. Take Mary, take your baby, and go. And Joseph just does just that. Because it turns out it wasn't time for the Savior born in Bethlehem to die yet. Now, I don't want you to, to mistake this for, for God trying to avoid death. For Jesus trying to, or Mary and Joseph even, trying to, to keep their son from dying. This was all part of God's plan because God said, Through the prophet Isaiah, my son will be pierced for your transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that will bring us peace will be upon him. But that wasn't going to happen through Herod's wicked hand. That was going to happen years, decades later, 
by a cross outside of Jerusalem where he would be lifted high above the world for the forgiveness of our sins. But Herod taking his life, that wasn't part of God's plan. Because it turns out no one can take Jesus' life from him. Jesus even says this later on in ministry. No one can take my love from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Herod's plan is foiled. Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus, they end up in Egypt. But unfortunately, all of these two-year-old boys in Bethlehem are they're killed. Now, I think on a certain level, you all understand what we're talking about, right? That, that nobody can change the plans of God. God's plans are far higher and far bigger than anything that you and I could, could ever come up with. And we have no business to even question the plans in the mind of God. And we also understand that that at a different point in history, we have this recorded for us in Scripture, at a different point in history, God died on the cross to take away our sins. Nothing can stop, not even the best laid plans of man can stop God's plans from being carried out. But what does this have to do with us as 21st century Christians? How can this truth be helpful to us as we continue to walk our Christian walk with God through I guess what I would call turbulent times. Well, since the fall into sin, mankind's hearts and will have always been to, or have been turned against God. And for centuries, really through all of the ages of the world, mankind, kings and kingdoms have tried to get rid of God and the way he works and rid the world of this whole notion of a savior. Herod is certainly not the first and he certainly isn't the last. I mean, think about what happened after Jesus lived and died and rose and ascended into heaven. What happened with Christianity? It spreads like wildfire across the known world. And when those great fires in, in about the middle of the first century break out in Rome, what does crazy Emperor Nero do? Or who does crazy Emperor Nero blame for the fires? Blames Christians. Like Herod, Nero wanted to, to wipe Christianity, wipe Christians off the face of the earth, but but not even the best laid plans of a crazy man like Nero can frustrate the plans of God. God's plans will win. And you don't just see this in, in, in ancient history. You see this today in modernity. You see it, just think even about the last decade that we've lived through. You've seen mass persecutions of Christians in places like Ukraine. In China, you still cannot worship openly as a Christian. And when the government discovers that you are worshiping openly, what do they do to you? They arrest you, they throw you in jail, sometimes they kill you. Even in our own country, where we have as a right in our constitution religious freedom, we've watched as the government has slowly encroached on this constitutional right. And I'm not being some, some like alt-right conspiracy theorist or anything. Like that's not, that's not the point of all of this, but we've watched this happen. Look at, the last, look at what happened two years ago when, when the pandemic hit. What did the government tell churches? Right, I mean, they really, they told everybody this, but it affected churches. What did they tell them? You can't worship. You can't gather. You can't gather around the means of grace, these life-giving instruments that God gives us to strengthen and sustain faith. You must not gather with one another. What did the government just pass a couple weeks ago? Are you familiar with this? The Marriage Equality Act, which is a bit of a misnomer. Right? So far, that doesn't have a great effect on us, other than it defines marriage in an anti-biblical way. But a time is probably coming where the government will say that you or we as an institution, as a Christian church, will have to start defining marriage the way that the government does. Otherwise, something like our nonprofit status will be taken. And it will probably get even worse than that, where the government will say, all right, you don't do this, jail, 
maybe even worse. We've seen this happen across history. It wasn't just Herod who tried to rid the world of God and tried to frustrate God's plans. It wasn't just Nero. We see this every single day. People, kingdoms, governments, individuals trying to frustrate the plans of God, trying to keep God from winning the salvation of souls. In the 15th century, there was a a German priest, a a theologian named Thomas Akempis. You ever hear that name before, Thomas Akempis? In one of his more popular devotional books uh, called the, called the Imitation of Christ, Akempis said this, homo proponent sed deus disponent. Now, for those of you who prefer a living language to a very dead Latin one, this is what he says. He says, man proposes, but God disposes. Hear that before? Man proposes, but God disposes. His point? Mankind can come up with all of the things that they want to do to to try to rid the world of God, of the gospel, of Jesus, but in the end, those plans will all come to nothing because the sovereign Lord's will will always prevail. Always will. God will always win. You see this with Herod, right? Herod proposes to kill baby Jesus, the newborn king of the Jews. God disposes of that plan. Totally frustrates it. Jesus makes it safely to Egypt, and then God calls him back out of Egypt. Nero tried to wipe out white Christianity off the face of the earth through, through mass persecution. God frustrates that plan and allows Christianity to continue to spread in a different place, north and west. And you and I are now recipients of the way that God had his gospel spread. For a long time, people, men, women, governments have tried to, to keep Jesus and his life-giving gospel from the world from the people. But God always wins. And the gospel continues to spread. Jesus' name continues to be proclaimed to the world, to people like you and me. And do you know why the gospel always wins? Why God always prevails? Because nothing can stop God. Absolutely nothing. And this morning, I'm looking at a room full of living testaments to this truth. From eternity, God said that you were going to be his own dear children. From eternity, God said that you would be an heir to his kingdom. From eternity, God said that you would have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. From eternity, he marked you out as one who would be a recipient of the gospel, the the tool which he uses to create and to sustain and to strengthen faith in your hearts. From eternity, God said that you would be one for whom that baby born in Bethlehem would live and die and rise to give you the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. God proposed that from eternity, and in a different sense of the word, God disposes that to you now in time. God worked through specially chosen messengers like friends and parents and grandparents and a lowly servant like me to ensure that you heard the very thing that the world has tried to keep from you, that Satan himself has tried to keep from you, the gospel. He worked through things like water, simple water connected to his powerful word to make you that dear child, to make you an heir to heaven, to make you an heir to eternal life. He continues to work today through bread and wine, and body and blood to sustain the very thing he promised from eternity to give you. And he continues day by day to strengthen that which he gives you through the gospel, strengthen your faith. 
And there are going to be a lot of people throughout the rest of our lives who try to frustrate that plan of God, to try to keep you and turn you away from being the very thing God has called you to be, a child of God and an heir to eternal life. But, but what man proposes, God disposes. He gives you all of these things, and the Lord's will will always prevail. And God be praised for that. Amen. Please stand. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.